friends, Greg Kokel here, and um, if you're receiving this, like, uh, well, whenever you're receiving it, it's going to be after Thanksgiving, so I uh, hope your Thanksgiving was a pleasant one. For me, it's still two days ahead because I'm doing this in advance, but I, I do want to say some things about um, about Thanksgiving, um, and since this is kind of on our minds right now because we in this little holiday weekend, um in the new tactics uh book that is the the tech the tenth anniversary version, I added a chapter about a tactic that I've been using for years and years and years, and uh, I never know how knew how to characterize it. I had some other odd names for it, and finally i i I came up with the idea of of referring to it as the inside out tactic, and the inside out tactic is based on the idea. And this I got from Francis Schaeffer, that human beings actually are made in the image of God. (laughs) That's a fact. And human beings must live in the world that God created. Now, if, if the Christian view of reality is accurate, then those are parts of it. There's an entailment there. It's Those are pieces of the package. And, of course, if these things are true, that means they correspond to reality, then we ought to be able to see those things in operation. In other words, the world, as we experience it, should be the kind of world that is described in Scripture. And human beings should be the kind of creatures that are described in, in Scripture. And part of what uh, seems to be the case of human beings is that even without a Bible, we can know things uh, and these are the, the way of knowing here is just uh, referred to by philosophers as an intuition. It's just it's something we know, and we don't know quite how we know it. It's something that's kind of built in, and we have rational intuitions, we have moral intuitions, we have we have a kind of perception about the way the world is that is reflected in our language. And so, for example, if we have if 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 we have uh, if we say we're atheists, or, or that we, or we say that morality is relative, and we really lived that out, we wouldn't have no grounds to be claiming that other people did things that were wrong. And gen- generally, when when we make this claim, we mean wrong in themselves. The act itself is not right as opposed to us saying, well, I don't like what you're doing, and I wouldn't do what you're doing, but I can't inveigh against your behavior on, uh, on, on, uh, in terms of the behavior itself. <laughs> that would be objectivist. All I could say is, relativistically, I don't like it. But that isn't the way people talk. Even people who say that they're relativists. In fact, in, in one sentence, you'll get um, this contradiction. For example, morality is relative. There are no objective moral rules. Therefore, it's wrong for you to push your morality on me. Now, do you hear the contradiction? If morality is utterly subjective, then there is no no reason why I shouldn't push my morality, even if it's my subjective morality, on someone else, because pushing morality can't be wrong in the objective sense. Okay, I just use that as an illustration of how there's something inside of us that we can't get away from. The fact is, we live 
in a deeply moral world. There are, we, we, Francis Schaeffer called our own behaviors or responses to that moral motions. We certainly act and talk as if morality was objective, not subjective. Why do we do that? That's the question. Even when we believe otherwise, we can't keep our mouth from confessing, acknowledging, affirming something that we say we don't believe. It's because there's something deep inside of us that knows better, and when we don't have our guard up, that other thing comes out. That's that inbred, not inbred, in, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's inside of us, it's not inbred, it's, it's created, Amy's helped me out. Innate, thank you, Amos. That's the innate moral nature that is part of us. That's why it's called a moral nature, it's part of our nature. It's part of being human. And it fits our worldview. And because it's built into us, it can't keep from coming out of us. All right? So that's the inside-out aspect of this approach. We know there are things that are built in us in virtue of being human, regardless of what we say we believe, and therefore it ends up coming out of us, especially when our guard is down, even though it's inconsistent with what we say we believe. And thus, this response, this intuitive, reflexive uh, response, bears testimony to our deeper convictions about the way the world actually is, and it turns out to match up with the Christian understanding of reality. Okay? So that's that's the um, that's the, there in a kind of a nutshell is the point is the the predicate for what I have to say about Thanksgiving because you're wondering wait a minute I thought he was going to talk about Thanksgiving okay and and so I have just a couple of thoughts here and I've shared these before but I, I every Thanksgiving I think it's a good idea to kind of revisit these um, because we all seem to be aware that gratitude is a virtue. Gratitude is something good to do. It's virtuous. It's good manners, if you will. It's it's noble to do this. It's a it's morally appropriate. Good people are grateful. People who are ingrates, well, that's not very good. That's not a virtue. It's a vice. So, and this is not controversial. Okay, we all acknowledge this. Gratitude is a virtue. Okay, but I want you to think about the notion of gratitude that we all acknowledge is appropriate, all right? And that in a certain sense, in a certain way of speaking, there is no such thing as gratitude in isolation, okay? That is, we never have gratitude by itself, all right? It's always gratitude for something, right? We are grateful for something, and we are grateful to. So there's a grateful for and a grateful to. Now, I started thinking about this when I heard Michael Shermer, who is the uh, founder of Skeptic Magazine, well-known American atheist. I I had a three-hour debate with him uh, many years ago on national radio, Hugh Hewitt's program on the Salem Network, and uh, and I and he was talking about Thanksgiving, and he said, "I'm thankful for the things in my life." 
which I think he ought to, and it is virtuous that he is thankful. But then the question is, uh, not just what is he thankful for, because that is something anyone could identify. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my position in life or my success in business or uh, the amount of money I make or the uh, the good weather in Southern California or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. I'm thankful for. But thanks, gratitude is not just thanks for. It is also thanks to. In other words, there's an acknowledgement that the thing you are thankful for is something that has been given to you by someone else to whom you're giving thanks. So if Amy brings in my water here uh, when I'm thirsty, I am thankful for the water. But the thankfulness for the water does not exist on its own. I am thankful for the water that Amy gave me, so I am thankful to Amy for the water. Do you see? They go hand in hand. It doesn't make any sense to say that I'm thankful for something unless there is someone to whom you're giving thanks, or something even. I guess I could say I'm thankful to be an American, and so I'm, I, I give thanks to America. <laughs> and that sounds a little abstract, but, you know, America's made up of people, individuals who collectively have provided something we are thankful for. So what it turns out to be, if Thanksgiving is appropriate, we just had it, we gave thanks, we are giving thanks for something, but we are also thankful to those to, to some, some, I want to try not to show my hand here, but I guess I'm going to, to someone. We are thankful to the persons regarding the things we are thankful for. And by the way, that's pretty simple, right? It's not controversial. Thankful to my parents for raising me in a certain way, for example. Uh, thankful to the founders for creating a nation like ours. Okay. Now, um, pretty straightforward, but I want you to think about something. Sometimes we are thankful, properly thankful. We have a sense in inside of us that we, we ought to show some gratitude for that, for things that no human being is responsible for. What now? I'm thankful I was born in the U.S. Yes, I had parents, uh, but they were not responsible for me being here in a certain sense. I mean, they had me, yes, but but it, it's they, they didn't move to America so they could give me America. <laughs> My parents didn't move to America. They were born here. I'm fourth generation, actually, Bohemian on my dad's side, and that would be Prague is where my forebears are from. People ask me, what is your last name? So take a shot. I've only had one person ever hit it right in the head. You're Bohemian. Some people have said Chesky, and I said, okay, that's pretty good, but that's like post-war, uh, post, and that's they reorganized all of that. Uh, in any event, so my my I, I am thankful that I was born here, but I my parents aren't the ones who are responsible in that sense. 
They just had kids. So here's what I'm getting at. I think most of us properly feel thankful for lots of things that no human has given us. But it seems that we have been given it nonetheless. So who is the proper object of our gratitude in those circumstances? That's the question. And uh, I think the most reasonable answer is not aliens. <laughs> this, I think, is kind of a, you know, a simple argument for God's existence. Argument from gratitude. I mean, Lewis had his argument from desire. We desire things because there are satisfactions for the things we desire, at least in principle. But we have certain desires about things that will never be satisfied in this life. Satisfies for uh, desires for justice, for example. So there must be a place where justice, in principle, can be satisfied. We must be made for another world or another life, something to that effect. Well, there's a similarity to this kind of argument. Naturally, we think it's good to be grateful for things, but the thing, but when we are grateful for something, we are grateful to someone for that thing that we are grateful. And there are some things for whom there is no human being in the, in the, the limited scope there of earthly things that is an adequate provider of the thing that we think we should be thankful for. And this then points us beyond our natural um, environment to something beyond that. And uh, that's why classically Thanksgiving, that is the holiday, has been set aside to give thanks to God. And we have a, we, it's a national day of Thanksgiving. I think Lincoln was involved with that. I, there might have been somebody before Lincoln who actually initiated. I, I, I get different, I have different notes on that, I, and I'm not referring to them right now. That the point is, whoever it is that said, let's have one day set aside for Thanksgiving, understood that the day that was being set aside for Thanksgiving was being set aside to give thanks to the one, capital O, for which, from whom all blessings flow, every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven, from the author of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James chapter 1. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll go to calls. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith, because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com.
As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, red pen logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. <laughs> All right, back with you here, Greg Kokel on Stand to Reason, giving you a piece of my mind uh, today, as I often do, as if I'm capable. <laughs> Got a little cold today. My voice sounds more baritone right? Um, 855-243-9975 is the number if you'd like to call in during showtime, which is Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m., Pacific Time, no longer PDT, just PT. And uh, can't wait until they stop this silliness and just adopt one or the other and leave it that way. In Columbus, Ohio, though, we have Kevin. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, Greg. Thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. So I am uh, part of a church here for about since 2016. Bible teaching church, mm-hmm. big. Um, you know, it's got like six pastors. Two of them are senior pastors or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, broken down into home churches. Good apologetics. They take that seriously. It's you no, know, it's a good Bible teaching church, but they don't address. They do not address the the, the, the cultural cultural issues that are facing us right now. Hmm. They just don't talk to us about it. They just go through the Bible. It's like a great Bible study, you know, church, but they don't address the issues. They don't, uh, you know, the transgenderism, the mm-hmm. homosexuality. They just, they don't, I don't talk about it, hmm. you know, and it bothers me. Mm-hmm. Should it, okay, so should it bother me? And if it, and so should I talk, should I send them something? What should I send them? Yeah. And when they tell me, when, and when they blow me off after I send them something, what should I do? Well, uh, let me take it in reverse. If you send something to them and talk to them and then they disregard it, one way or another, there's not much you can do, okay? And I, um, I've i talked in the past about how you go to your pastor and, and uh, offer some thoughts of correction or whatever, and, and what I've said is, and, and this happened to me when I was on a pastoral staff of, I think, 
13, 14, 15 different staff pastors, and uh, I had a particular role there, and I, when I disagreed with the pastor on something, you know, if it was worth um, making a comment about, and, and, and in this particular case, the staff was, it was nothing earth-shaking. It wasn't like off-the-reservation stuff, but, but there were things that I was concerned about, and I'd go with my hat in my hand and uh, ask permission to share some thoughts and concerns, and but I was also... Um, I made it clear that uh, I wasn't in charge, that they were. And my responsibility is to offer my thoughts to my boss, the head pastor, and then his. I trusted him to take those into consideration before the Lord, and that was the end of it. I wasn't going to keep beating them up about it. Now, if it was something I really cared about, and it really mattered, and they weren't responsive, then I've got to make a decision. Do I want to stay under leadership that I have trouble with in this area. And um, in every church, there's going to be differences of opinion that you're going to have with the pastor, okay? The only church that I could go to where I would agree with everything the pastor taught is the church that I was the pastor at, (laughs) and that I'm not entirely sure I'd always agree with myself, you know? So um, you're going to have those kinds of things, and you just learn to live with them. Um, but you, but they're certainly not inappropriate if you have some thoughts about maybe this should be addressed. Um, it's not inappropriate to to talk about that. In fact, and I just recalled, I actually had breakfast with my own pastor on Sunday. And I was batching it that day. People were sick at my house, and so um, after the service, they said, let's go out and have breakfast. We have a good relationship. And I was able to share a few things myself that I thought um, might uh, he might think about in terms of improvement. And it turns out that one thing I shared was what other people had shared. But I was very careful not to beat up on my pastor and not, you know, come uh, on my high horse or anything like that. All right. So that's just background. If they you share and if they if they listen, they listen, you know, if they take it into consideration, fine. You leave it there. It's uh it's their job to run the church before God, not not yours or mine. So that's a general uh a, a general response to your last concern. What if how does this look when I do it and and what if they don't agree or something like that? Okay. So are you with me so far, Kev? Yeah. Yep. Okay. The second issue, though, which is the first one that you brought up, is I think it is a problem. I, 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 it was interesting that you said they do they do a good job at apologetics. Okay, they they like that. All right, but then they aren't. They're not addressing the 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 transsexual stuff or the homosexual stuff. Now, what strikes? They're good Bible teachers. Now, what strikes me is that these are things that the Bible explicitly speaks to. Uh, from the first chapter, God made them male and female, and uh, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, right? And then we have chapter 2 of Genesis, which Jesus refers back to in Matthew 19, when he's asked a question about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And he goes back to the original um, creation order, and he said, this is the way God intended it. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. 
So, uh, I mean, people say Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Well, um, he, what here is he sets up the standard. The one flesh is between a man and a woman who are committed for life. So in that one passage in Matthew 19, as he refers back to Genesis 2, which, by the way, in that passage he says, have you not heard, have you not read that God from the beginning, made them male and female. So he starts with binary gender. So these are features of biblical teaching that that stand in contrast to the way the culture is going. So I guess what I'm thinking is, how can they, if they're teaching the Bible, how can they not address these things? At least sometime, you know, as they're moving through scriptures. And, I mean, I don't—do you have an answer for that? They may not teach on it this weekend, but it's kind of hard not to address the divine order that God set up, especially in the face of pushback that we're getting from the culture. Yeah, I mean, I would just expect—I mean, if I was a—okay, here we go. If I was a pastor, I would make make sure that my congregation was not confused at what the Bible stood. I would make sure, okay. okay, over and over, all right, because they are getting confused. I got house church leaders saying that they'd be curious to see what it's like to go to a gay wedding, and I'm just like, what? What? Well, is it just a matter of curiosity, like really base curiosity? What What would that be like, or is it because they are are not entirely convinced that that's something inappropriate? Base curiosity. Well, I don't mind the curiosity business, just like you might go to a, a, a mosque or an LDS church or something like that, just to take it in and figure out what's going on. But if it's if it's because they are they are confused, like if you go to a, if you go to a mosque, you go to a mosque to to get a sense of what's going on there because you know this is not Christianity. It's not right. It's it's a it's an alternate religion that is false insofar as it disagrees with the Christian worldview, which is true. Now, so if, if it's curiosity, I'm not troubled by that. But if it's because they, they don't have a sense, yeah, this ain't right. This isn't what God has in mind. Um, I'm curious to what they do and how they do it, but, but going from the perspective of understanding the biblical the biblical um, teaching on these things. So that's... Yeah. That, so I, I guess there's, this could be okay or it could not be okay, depending on the individual. But if well, we, I, I have to disagree that because if you're invited to a wedding, you're invited as a witness oh, and well, you're assenting no. to what's happening. Okay, well that qualification hadn't been mentioned first. If you're invited to a wedding, okay. Yeah. If so we've talked about that standard reason before that we don't agree. We we encourage people not to go when they're invited to a wedding as a celebrant, so to speak. You know, yeah. I thought yeah, this well, was just pretty, a. Yeah. Uh, so I misunderstood your point a little bit. I'm with you on that, but uh, maybe the best thing to do on this. You mentioned two. There's also the abortion issue. Do they talk about that? I mean, rarely, rarely. Do, do they? Do they? When they rarely speak of it, do they speak of it as a weighty moral issue and try to equip people to think? Biblically no. about it, properly about it? No, 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 no. They just go through the Bible, really, you know? Not not with no consideration of maybe I should focus on this because 
it's really a weighty issue. So do you think if they were going through Matthew and they were in chapter 19 that they wouldn't use that as an occasion to, to take Jesus' teaching and contrast it to the cultural teaching? Um, I doubt it. Hmm. I doubt it. I mean, it's, 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 we are, uh, this church is under, we, I don't know how much you know about Columbus, Ohio. It's a very liberal town and we're under, um, actually there's been a local news, um, NBC station that's done a four part, um, expose on us, quote unquote. Oh, um, is this, uh, Gary Delashamus church? It is, yes, huh. it is. And it's all been nonsense, what they've been trying to quote-unquote dig up. Um, and I've taken it as kind of a badge of honor because we're getting hassled, because right. we do church discipline, you know, we do discipleship, uh-huh. and, you know, the culture around doesn't like it. Well, they're this, trying to pick anything up that can stick. Well, well that's super, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I knew, Gary and I were friends almost 50 yeah. years ago, we were both fairly yeah, yeah. new Christians yeah, is, in Southern I California. I met you at the CIA. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, I can't vouch for everything they're doing, you know, and he is extremely capable. He was very capable 45 years ago when I knew him, yeah. you know, yeah. as a, biblically and as a, t- a teacher, and I'm not exactly sure what reasons are that they're not willing to kind of take on these issues as such, especially when they have um, very clear um, biblical, um, they're related very clearly to biblical issues, homosexuality, transsexuality, etc. And part of equipping the uh, the church um, to deal with the culture, and they're a very, very big church, I know, and in, in many ways very successful. They have multiple campuses, etc. But um, I, I, I just... I guess I can't speak to that. It will just set my knowledge of that particular church and the pastors aside for the moment. I think that they ought to be doing, a church ought to be doing this, and that there are opportunities from Scripture. You've got 1 Corinthians 6. It talks about these these sexual sins. I mean, there are lots of places in the New Testament that talks about sexual sins, but Romans 1, specifically about homosexuality and, and an opportunity, and particularly if the if these are areas where the church is being undermined in terms of its strength and and the conviction of its people, this is where the attack is at, you know. And so what you want to be doing is you want to be doubling down in those areas where where the attack is at. So, I mean, I'm thinking military terms, you know. So yeah, you, you've got— I agree, and it's not happening, I'm frustrated. Well, I, I guess what I would suggest is that you— you go to one of the principals and simply ask the question. Um, uh, I, I make your observation. I, I notice that these are not topics that are addressed as such from the pulpit, but these are topics that are really banging away at the church in our community and in communities all the way all around the country. I'm why I'm. I'm mystified by that. You want to be able to ask the question without sound like you're coming across critical, because you don't have all the information, and maybe they've got a good reason. I don't know. But but uh, you want to ask them. I, I'm mystified by it, and I, it's especially since you, you are interested and you do emphasize apologetics, why is it that these topics are not being addressed to help us know how to deal with them in the, in the community? And ask them that question. And see what they have to say. I mean, I don't know what they would say. 
Um, some churches just don't want to be political. Look at there's a huge church. When I say political, I'm putting this in square, scare, scare quotes because these are policy issues. A lot of these that have deep moral ramifications. That's not like saying I I don't want to be against slavery because that's political. <laughs> you know, yeah, but it's yeah. not just political. It isn't mere partisanship. This is a huge moral issue. Okay, so um, I mean, I I would I would in this church in Southern California, and I'm not going to name it because I don't want to disparage it. The good things happening there, but the um, I know that when Obergefell came down from SCOTUS in 2015, essentially legalizing same-sex marriage, there was there was not a a peep from the leadership from the pulpit about that event. Not a peep. Yeah. And, and I just that that drives me bonkers. Part, yeah, and so there, huh? Excuse me. Um, as if this doesn't have, have great significance for everybody here, and how do we engage, and how do we think about this, whatever? So you know, but but no, neither was there equipping. There was no equipping or helping or response or whatever biblical characterization of marriage or whatever. But I, my suspicion is, since this particular church has gone my characterization now has gone from being a, a, a seeker church to, and this is the way a lot of them have gone, to being consumer churches. In other words, we're going to give the people what they want, and they don't want this, because if we start talking about this stuff, then they're not going to come back, yeah. and we want them yeah. to keep coming back. So that's consumer-oriented. Now, it would be, I would be surprised if the people in your church, that's their mentality. Okay, let me just put it that way, based on what I've I've known about them over the years, but, you know, who knows? Uh, that is what's going on with some people, though. Uh, this may seem too political for them, some of these issues, and so we're just going to stand off it, or, or, or we don't want to ruffle feathers for whatever reason. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to tell you. One thing that I do know, though, in our current cultural climate, everything is political. Everything is political. In our community— Conejo Valley, the CV, Conejo Valley, USD, Unified School District, has this policy out that has to do with gender and transgender stuff. It has nothing to do with education. It's all politics. But these are politics that affect every single child in a public school in our, in our community. And it reflects state law. So here is an intrusion of politics into areas that are really properly reserved, in my view, um, for parents, and they have moral ramifications to them. And so you can't just say, oh, I don't want to get involved in politics. I don't want to mix politics with religion, because nowadays everything is political, but which is characteristic, incidentally, of a fascist state. We are not in a fascist state, but that is a characteristic of fascism. Um, Mussolini, his his father of fascism, his motto was everything in the state, nothing outside of the state, and nothing against the state. So when you have all of these issues becoming quote unquote political, and your that that, that statism. That's moving in a wrong direction. But if you have a spiritual conviction that we are not going to mix politics with our religion, that means you, you've just decided you're not going to speak to anything relevant to anybody except for, you know, issues of, I guess, 
salvation in, in its most restrained sense, simple sense, profound, you know, trusting Christ for salvation. You can talk about whether you baptize babies or not, and what what it means to have communion, and what's the proper understanding of the Lord's Supper, but you're not going to be able to speak about anything that matters to people's day-to-day lives uh, as they interact with the rest of culture. And then we should be surprised when people say Christianity is irrelevant, because we've made it irrelevant by the rule that we're not going to get political. Anyway, I, I don't know if that's what the team over there at uh, um, your church well, is. Uh, is I don't know if that's her project or anything. I would be surprised at that, but but that may be the case for a lot of churches that are way too silent on some of these cultural issues. Xenos, I think, is the name of the church, right? Xenos? Yeah, they changed it to, change it to Dwell. Oh, they changed it to, to something else? Dwell. Yeah, D-W-E-L-L. Oh, hmm. Yeah, Xenos. Well, like I wasn't, I mean, I didn't like the word Xenos that much, but it just, just in terms of branding, but I don't think Dwell improves on it, so whatever. No. That's not my business, what the church calls itself, but um, how it comports itself is, is a different matter. So um, so I give you, there's my general remarks. Ask the question of somebody who's a principal in charge to find out what the official response is. That would be the best thing to do at this point, and then if you if you're not satisfied with the response, then you might offer your concerns. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No. Good. Thank you for the yeah. Thanks for the call, Kevin. I'd be interested maybe in a month or two once you've covered some ground on this. Uh, what ends up happening there? Just not because of Xenos per se, but just in general, handling this kind of issue and and uh, how that worked out for you. Okay. Okay. I will. Thanks. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. So uh, let's see. Do we want to? Um, what do we want to do here? I, I I have. Amy recommended a resource for me, and uh, so I, I, uh, since I brought it with me to talk about, and it's a tome. I don't want to keep bringing it back and forth, back and forth to the studio without having to say anything about it. But many of you know that I. Um, I because uh, I've written about this that it is a it is a challenge uh, to um, nurture my personal relationship with the Lord. Now uh, I don't think my life is unique in that regard. Uh, I think prayer is hard, and I don't know exactly how it works. Um, I have not I have no idea about the calculus of prayer. And uh, like how much you pray, and and how many people pray, and what you say to get the job done, to get God to move, whatever. I I, I don't I have no idea, and I've talked about this before, and so I look for different um, ways to keep me in the prayer saddle, so to speak. Incidentally, this is not unusual for Christians. C.S. Lewis has talked about this problem. Um, uh, 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 Tim Keller has talked about this problem. I just read a biography of um, uh, what's his name? The Welsh guy, Amy. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the Welsh guy. She's talking with somebody else, so she can't help me out. Who's the Welsh guy that you listen to? The preacher. Thank you, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, and um, 
he is fabulous. In fact, she listened to him because there are still recordings that are available of Martin Lloyd Jones preaching. But these are it's not, everybody you who you admire who is good at prayer acknowledges that it's hard. And so uh, I've written a number of pieces about things that I do to make my devotional life, for lack of a better word, more consistent and more effective. And so Amy suggested um, this—well, let me back up before you—many of you know that I use a book of Puritan prayers called Valley of Vision, okay? And I still use that. It's just a little one-page prayer from a Puritan, and I pray that prayer as my prayer, as is appropriate for my theology. So some things I cross out in their prayer because I don't that doesn't reflect my view, but that's okay. It helps me. And I pray from my heart when I do that. And sometimes as I'm moving through Valley of Vision uh, with this prayer, it, it stimulates other thoughts, and I expand on the concept in the phrase or the sentence and, and pray more before the Lord from my own heart extemporaneously. But I have this um, aid, all right, that helps me. So what Amy suggested is this book called Be Thou My Vision. The other one's called Valley of Vision. This is called Be Thou My Vision, which is the title of a very well-known hymn. And uh, it is a it is a, a type of—it's not exactly a devotional, but it's a prayer aid, and it's put together in a way I've never, ever seen before. Um, it's published by Crossway, and since I was at ETS, Evangelical Theological Society, all last week in Denver, and they had a big bookstore there, and things were— marked down, and Crossway had this big thing there. I was able to look at it, and I liked it, so I bought actually three copies. And the regular copy was priced at 15 the hardbound, and the leather was 16 For a buck, I get leather. So I bought three copies, one for me, one for my wife, Christmas time coming up. She doesn't listen to the broadcast, so I'm, you know, no spoiler alert there. And I'm thinking my, my 14-year-old, who's a sophomore, in what, two and a half years, she'll be heading off to university somewhere, and I would like to make this as a gift to her. Not now, it's too much for her, but maybe by then it'll it'll be good for her. Now, let me explain how this is uh, laid out. Um, the, uh, there, there are, even though it looks like a, like a Bible, you know, leather bound and it's thick, it's over 300 pages, actually, but it's, 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 it's divided up mostly into 30 sections, one for each day, day one, day two, day three, then you start over. And let me um, describe how this format works, okay? So, um, in, in fact, rather than kind of reading through a whole day and having a devotional with you here on the air, I'll just, I'll just, uh, just read what they how they describe, they lay out these sections. So first, there's a, a call to worship. So when you open up your day two, it says call to worship. Hear God call you to worship through his word. And then they have 31, one for each day, scripture readings, alternating Old Testament, New Testament daily, and repeated monthly. So call to worship, you read a passage. It's a paragraph, a pericope that pertains to coming into God's presence. Oh, that's nice. And then there's next section, adoration. And this is where you can pray or sing praise to God. And there are 31 prayers from church history, repeated monthly, including 
the doxology, which is com- repeated weekly. So what you can do, you got you're, you're starting out, and it's helping you get motion motion in your in your time with God. It gives you something to do. But you're either looking at a passage and reading it out loud and personably for yourself as you get rolling in your time there in worship, and then you read a prayer uh, that someone else from church history, usually old-timers, like long time ago, um, not all Puritans, by the way, but some, a mixture of different people who express something in a, in a profound way that's meaningful. Then you have a reading of the law. So this is, there's a liturgy here, but it's very simple. And uh, they have seven Scripture readings, repeated weekly. Now, when I say Scripture reading, it's only a paragraph. It's just a pericope. It's a section. And it has a has a whole thought kind of to it as you read through it. Then there's a section, Confession of Sin, uh, 31 prayers from church history, repeated monthly. It's just a prayer acknowledging your need for God because of your own uh, acts of rebellion in your life. Then there's a section that's assurance of pardon. That's the next one, 31 scripture readings, again, alternating between Old Testament and New Testament. And then there's a creed, okay? So you have sections of uh, that, that, that are inviting you now to confess what you believe about the Christian faith. You have sections from the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, um, and, uh, and, and you, you, those are all worked into the different days. So as you're reading Scripture and you're kind of building momentum, now you're making a confession of your convictions in a kind of, again, one paragraph— precise way about important things like the person of God and the person of Christ and the nature of the Trinity, etc. Um, and you are saying it in a, in a way that thoughtful ancient Christians have worked out so you could be precise about your beliefs. The next one is praise, and uh, generally that is two versions of the Gloria Patri, which is just a few sentences. And uh, then you have a catechism piece, and the catechisms are in the back, and they alert you to going back to a section in the back. So you read um, maybe one paragraph of a catechism, a Heidelberg catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and there's one question every day. Then there's a short prayer of illumination. They have seven examples from church history. And then then you have your Scripture reading, and you could follow whatever pattern that you want of reading Scripture. And I have a particular way that I do that, and they have a suggested pattern in the back as well. And then there's prayer of intercession. So this is the kind of thing that you kind of pray for all of your stuff, and then they suggest, what about prayer for your church or for your friends or for healing? So they make a few suggestions, but this is where you fill in that. Um, and then finally they close with the Lord's Prayer, okay? And um, so here is—my it's, concern here is by describing it to you, I made it sound more difficult, more tedious than it actually is. It's not tedious at all. It's refreshing. And there's an organization to it that builds well with with prayer, praise from the Scripture, prayer from ancient Christians, 
more Scripture sentences that relate to the law and acknowledgement of sin before God, and there are passages that help you with that and then assure you that Jesus is there to forgive your sins, and you kind of build your momentum, and then you have your own Scripture reading, whatever that is, and then you can have your personal prayer. By the time you get to personal prayer, you're moving. you got great momentum. Now, I don't do this every day. Just There's no pattern that I do exactly the same every day. Sometimes I just jump into it because there are things on my heart that I'm just pouring out to God. But I really have found this to be um, a sweet and refreshing way of having time with the Lord when I'm able to sit down in a quiet place and reflect and pray and read. I don't do this on the airplane. I don't do it in a hotel room, uh, but when I'm home and I get up, I head to my little study area and I sit down, make my coffee, and then have my time with the Lord. And it's, a, it's an important part of my daily routine. And what this layout allows me to do is to do it with, in an orderly fashion, gets me moving. You know, sometimes it's hard to get moving, right? This gets me moving in a substantive way that is not burdensome, all right? So once again, Be Thou My Vision. Uh, The author is um, Gibson, last name I'm looking. Jonathan Gibson, Crossway has published it. Uh, Jonathan Gibson has worked with some others to take all of these pieces and edit them together, because really that's what it is. It's an editor's effort under these different headings to place the content the verses, the prayers, the reflections, whatever, for each day. And uh, once you finish a day, you're, you're done. You can move on. Uh, very satisfying. So I, I commend this to you. Be thou my vision. And I think it'll be another help to your prayer life. Now, we just have about six minutes to go. Can we play... Uh, the, the short one-minute thing, question by Paul here. I can't even pronounce his last name. What are your thoughts about addressing it's Gian? There you go. You got it there. Let's, see, let's hear what he has to say. This is our open mic call. Hi, Greg. Thanks for everything you do. I'm a monthly partner and want to encourage all the listeners to do that too. Thank you, Paul. Read some of your books and so many of the resources. All the speakers at SGR are great. I had a question about prayer, and um, not sure if I've ever heard it addressed. So, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on someone who addresses the devil during prayer. For example, they say something like, "In the midst of saying, God, we thank you for whatever, and God, we pray for this." You know, in the midst of saying things like that, they say something like, "And Satan, we put you on notice that you're defeated and that you have no power over us." You know, again, they're saying things that I agree with theologically and are biblical, but they're addressing the devil during prayer, and I find that a little unique. I'm not sure how to feel about it. I'm not sure how to say amen to that kind of thing, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks for everything you do. Well, thank you, Paul, and I think this is a good question, and I can answer it fairly quickly. Um, I n- never was comfortable with talking to the devil in prayer. Now, I th- I have had some people even recently really encourage me to rebuke and claim my family, etc., 
tell the devil that they can't have hands on my he can't have hands on my family etc you know things like that and it's well meaning and uh and I respect the people who offer that but when i think about the instruction in scripture i actually don't see anything like that i do see jesus addressing devils demons but demons that are in or have demonized people and he 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 speaks to them to release their hold on the people and so in a circumstance like that there certainly seems to be a propriety to addressing the demon and uh and casting him out now this has never been part of my experience as it turns out and some of you may have had experiences like that and i'm not disparaging that i think this is a biblical motif of prayer regarding demons but uh, other than that circumstance i don't see any other place where jesus has done this and certainly no exhortation for us to do it either what jesus does say is in the lord's prayer which is really the disciples prayer he tells them to pray regarding this lead us not into temptation now of uh, the devil is called the tempter so this seems to be referring to a circumstance not that God would lead us, it seems like a figure of speech of sorts, where he's saying, keep us from the temptations of the devil. Because obviously God's not going to tempt us, James 1. God doesn't tempt us, that is, um, allure us into sin. That's the devil's job, and he does that. And so this is a prayer, God, keep us from that. Um, and the way Jesus puts it is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Now, the text says, from the evil. That's all it says, it's from the evil, but it's a, a, uh, a definite article, and therefore it probably is referring to the evil one. It could be referring to broader moral evil, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil temptation. Here's the way I pray that. I just pray it like it's in the Greek. I don't read the Greek, but I just know. God, deliver me from the evil. Okay? And I might say, the, uh, then say, I, deliver me from evil, and deliver me from the evil one. I'm, I'll, I'll just cover all the bases. But notice who I'm talking to. I'm talking to the Father. I'm not talking to the devil. Now, Jesus does make a statement in the Gospels where he talks about binding the strong man, and that seems to be in the context of demonic powers. And uh, you have to bind a strong man before you can pillage his house. But there is no sense in the passage that it is our job as Christians to bind the strong man. My sense is, and I don't have it right in front of me right now, but that Jesus is the one who has bound the strong man. He's the only one that can do it. And um, And the things, and I'm not even sure what these kinds of prayers would accomplish. Like, I I got you on notice that, you know, you're not in charge here. Well, he already knows he's not in charge here. Um, I, I don't know what us saying that is. And I don't know what claiming or saying we bind Satan over our household or matters like that. I, I don't know what that—I guess I'm not confident that really accomplishes anything more than asking God to protect us. Because that's what Jesus modeled for us in that prayer. Pray this way. 
God, protect us from the evil. Deliver us from the evil. So my prayer for my family is not against the devil. It, I don't pray against the devil. I don't say to the devil, do this, that, or the other. I ask the Father to do it for me, following Jesus' instruction in the Lord's Prayer. I might be praying amiss. Maybe I'm missing something. But if I'm missing something, it's not anything that it seems to be clear in Scripture. This is manifests itself in certain Christian cultural settings where people are are, are, are given to talk this way, and, um, but, uh, and I'm not disparaging that. I'm just saying I don't see any biblical reason to do that. The biblical model that I see is a bit different. It is talking to the Father, asking Him to protect us, rather than, you know, speaking to the devil. Do we have authority in Christ? We do on a number of things. But I, I'm not sure what that means is that now it's our job to speak out just the right words to the devil to keep him from doing his mischief. Not convinced about that. Could be wrong. Anyway, that's what I've got for you, Paul. And the rest of you as well. That's it for today. And uh, thank you for being part of our show. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand a Reason. You give him heaven. Bye-bye now.